Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember. And you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults. Jenna Hewitt and two friends strolled along Ditch Plains Beach, looking for a cool place to sit in the hot summer weather. They were eager to put their belongings down and take a dip in the ocean. But as they searched for a spot, they noticed a cluster of people gathering ahead. The group seemed to be looking at something in the sand. Intrigued, Jenna and her friends picked up the pace and approached. Jenna peered between the group's legs and caught a glimpse of a dark figure lying on the ground. After wedging her way into the circle, she glanced down and saw what all the fuss was about. It was a creature with the tail of a dog, the fingers of a raccoon, and the smooth exterior of a seal, and a bird-like beak. Jenna crouched down to get a better look and noticed its arms had been bound, as if someone had tied it up. She furrowed her brows and peered across the water. There was a small island about 20 miles away where scientists tested animal diseases. She'd heard stories about Plum Island over the years, but she never imagined they were creating monsters. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Plum Island. In the 1950s, the U.S. government established an animal disease center off the coast of Long Island. Last time, we examined the center's origins and discussed the strict safety measures put in place by its first director. We chronicled Plum Island's many different leaders and the disasters that struck its facilities, including a potentially fatal outbreak of foot-and-mouth disease and a hurricane that almost destroyed its labs. This time, we'll discuss three conspiracy theories related to Plum Island. 
Some theorists claim one of its first employees was a former Nazi scientist. Others believe Lyme disease was developed by the center's labs. And still others suggest Plum Island scientists created the legendary Montauk Monster. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the 1950s, the United States celebrated its victory over the Germans in World War II, but a new enemy loomed on the other side of the European continent. As the Soviet Union stockpiled weapons and emerged as a new superpower, U.S. officials feared the communist nation would use germ warfare on Americans. So, the government officials created an animal disease research center off the coast of Long Island called Plum Island. When it initially opened, the center focused its resources on creating weapons of biological warfare. Experiments at the facility had extremely strict security protocols. Only employees were allowed on the island when the lab was in operation. Some suspected they were hiding their experiments. But it's possible U.S. officials wanted to hide more than what they were studying. They also wanted to hide the researchers on their payroll. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. In its early years, Plum Island employed a Nazi scientist. At the start of the 1930s, Eric Traub traveled from Germany to the United States to study rare animal diseases. He received a fellowship from the Rockefeller Institute in New Jersey. At the time, the Nazi party's grip on German politics was tightening. And even though Traub was thousands of miles away from his home country, he found ways to support their efforts. Traub joined the German-American Bund, a local pro-Nazi group, and attended rallies with thousands of other German-Americans. Together, they goose-stepped through the streets, waved swastika flags, and burned pictures of Jewish congressmen. When the war broke out later that decade, 
Traub felt called to return home and show his support for Adolf Hitler. The Third Reich needed his scientific expertise, and Traub was more than happy to oblige. Hitler's second-in-command, Heinrich Himmler, sent Traub to Inzel Reims, a secret Nazi research facility. There, Traub researched ways Hitler's army could cripple enemy food supply and infrastructure. The Nazis first implemented his work in the early 1940s when Germany invaded Russia. Bombers flying over the country reportedly sprayed foot and mouth disease, or FMD, on cattle and reindeer. Like we mentioned in our last episode, FMD is highly contagious and lethal to animals. It's not clear how much the attack impacted Russia's agricultural industry. But if the Germans had managed to infect Soviet cattle, the sickness could have run rampant and had the potential to destroy the country's entire meat supply. Allegedly, Traub also sailed to the Black Sea in search of rinderpest, a disease also known as the cattle plague. As the Allies neared victory in 1945, the Germans rushed to destroy the evidence of any scientific discoveries they'd made during the war. They couldn't risk classified information falling into enemy hands, but they didn't move fast enough. Allied forces uncovered weapon caches, secret nerve agents, and even Hitler's alleged plot to bring about another wave of bubonic plague. With each revelation, it became clear just how advanced German technology had become. But there was one more discovery to be made. A Polish lab technician found a piece of paper stuffed halfway down a toilet bowl at a local German university. It was a list of names. The document made its way up the chain of command to American and British military leaders. They puzzled over the paper until they realized what they were looking at. It was a list of 15,000 scientists who worked for the Third Reich. The U.S. had a choice. They could track down the Nazi-sympathizing academics and bring them to justice. Or they could use them. American officials remembered the cache of biological weapons they'd uncovered and decided to use them. The United States launched Operation Paperclip, a program built to find, recruit, and hire former Nazi scientists. One of their targets was Eric Traub. As it turned out, he was in high demand. Following the war, Traub was in Soviet-controlled East Germany, possibly researching germ warfare for their military. U.S. officials managed to track him down and offered to bring him to America. It seemed he was eager to leave Europe and readily agreed to come west. According to author Michael Christopher Carroll, a Long Island native who has studied Plum Island extensively, one of Traub's first projects was at the facility. In 1949, the U.S. Army interviewed Traub about his work during World War II. We know he spoke about his research at Inzel Reims, but little else is known about the interrogation. In his book Lab 257, however, Michael Carroll suggested that during the interview, Traub pitched the idea of a national bio-warfare research facility to military officials. Using Inzel Reims as an example, 
he allegedly proposed that the U.S. build its own laboratories to research animal diseases and study how to weaponize them. Whether that's true or not, Congress passed a law authorizing the construction of an animal disease research center. And Traub continued to have a relationship with the military after his interview. He reportedly became a researcher at Fort Detrick in Maryland, where he studied toxic bacteria. But according to Carroll, a few years into his time at Dietrich in 1952, Traub received a phone call from Dr. Maurice Shahan, Plum Island's first director. Dr. Shahan offered Traub a job on Plum Island. The details of this call are unclear. But from an outsider's perspective, it would seem like Traub turned down the position because one year later, he returned to West Germany. However, in 1956, Traub was back on U.S. soil, attending Plum Island's opening ceremony. For some, this suggested Traub must have some sort of meaningful connection to the facility, whether he was on their payroll or not. Carroll has alleged that Traub returned to Plum Island two more times after the ceremony, once in 1957 and again in 1958, Again, the reasons for his visit are unclear, but his presence is worth noting. As we discussed last time, Dr. Shahan, Plum Island's director, was adamant that only employees could come onto the island. It didn't matter if they were military officials or top scientists in their field. So why would he make an exception for Traub? It's possible that Shahan was desperate for Traub to join the Plum Island staff. Carroll claimed that the lab contacted the German researcher again in 1958 after one of the facility's chief scientists retired. In his research, Carroll discovered a USDA memorandum from that same year titled Justification for Employment of Eric Traub. The document made a case for hiring Traub while, by and large, omitting mentions of his past as a scientist for the Nazi party. Whether the memorandum persuaded any American officials, we don't know. There's no definitive proof that Plum Island ever extended an employment offer to Traub. Officially, Traub never accepted a role at Plum Island. He remained in West Germany until he retired in the 1960s. Remember, though, Carol says Traub went to the island three times— once for the dedication ceremony and two other times after that. What were those extra visits about? Well, it's possible he just knew some of the researchers and got an invite. They were, after all, peers. That's not the same as working there. Well, I see your point, but what about Traub's 1949 interview with the military? It seems odd that the government agreed to develop an animal disease center right around the same time that Traub told officials about Inzel Reams. Despite what Carol claims, we don't actually know what they discussed in that interview. Even if the army based Plum Island off Inzel Reams, that doesn't mean Traub had a hand in the facility's creation. Because of this, and the lack of evidence to indicate that Traub ever worked at Plum Island, I'm giving this theory a 2 out of 10. You bring up some great points, but whether it was consulting or directly working there, I still think Traub had some kind of substantial connection to the labs, enough to be on the island for milestone events. I'm going to give this theory a 4. 
Plum Island may not have hit a former Nazi on its staff, but they might have a darker secret. Some theorists believe they unleashed a gruesome disease on the very people they swore to protect. Coming up, Plum Island's alleged experiments on American citizens. Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some truly exciting news. To commemorate the launch of Colts, ParCast's first book, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max, and another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person. All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of ParCast's new book, Cults, all for an incredible cause. Register today at ParCast.com slash cults. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. When lawmakers first announced their plans for Plum Island, many of the people who live nearby were furious. They worried the rare diseases studied in its labs might somehow escape the island and infect their towns. The Secretary of Agriculture ignored their concerns and ordered the facility be built anyway. It opened in 1954, and for the next two decades... Plum Island scientists and local residents coexisted in peace. But in 1975, the peace was disturbed by an infection. Which brings us to our second conspiracy theory. Plum Island created and unleashed Lyme disease on a nearby city. On a blistering summer day in Lyme, Connecticut, Polly Murray sat on her porch She could hear the crunching of leaves as a pack of deer scurried in the woods out back. 
Polly had retreated to the shade while her children played in the front yard. As she sipped lemonade, Polly watched her 12-year-old son carefully. He'd been under the weather ever since he was bitten by a bug a few weeks ago. As if on cue, her son trudged up to her. He grimaced and rubbed his temples as he told his mom that he was suffering from the worst headache of his life. She brought him inside for a glass of water and noticed that he had large red circles on his arms and legs, and they were swelling up. Shortly after, the rest of Polly's family developed the same headaches, circular rashes, and tenderness in their joints. The symptoms persisted for weeks, and it wasn't just the Murrays. Dozens of other young people in the Lyme area, including the daughter of a woman named Judith Mensch, came down with a mysterious sickness. Judith and Polly jumped into action. They phoned the Connecticut Department of Health and described the illness to officials who were just as baffled as they were. So they called nearby Yale University to see if their medical staff could take a look at the kids. Yale doctors diagnosed the children with rheumatoid arthritis, an autoimmune disease that causes joint swelling. While relatively common in adults, it's rarer for those under 40 to experience arthritis. Most of the patients in this case were kids. Based on these demographics, the doctor considered it a temporary diagnosis and continued to search for another explanation. In 1976, they found a common thread shared by all the affected patients. They'd been bitten by a deer tick. It seemed unlikely that a bug bite had given them arthritis, but it was the only lead doctors had. An official from New York's Department of Health sent some infected ticks to Dr. Willie Bergdorfer, a researcher at the National Institute of Health. Bergdorfer was an expert on ticks and tick-borne diseases. If anyone could get to the bottom of the ailments, it was him. Right away, Bergdorfer discovered an unusual bacteria inside the ticks called a spirochete. He recognized the corkscrew-shaped cells from other human diseases he'd studied, but this one operated differently. When he tested the spirochete, he realized that it directly affected the skin, blood, and muscles. Bergdorfer and another scientist compared the discovery with other known bacterias. They couldn't find a match. The researchers concluded that whatever sickness they'd found in the Lyme region wasn't typical arthritis. It was something entirely different, and it had been transmitted by the deer ticks in the area. The affliction came to be known as Lyme disease. When Lyme residents heard the news, some wondered if the animal research center across the water had anything to do with the illness. Perhaps there was a leak at the facility and a disease escaped. Or worse, the government was using Lyme residents as unwitting test subjects for a secret war project. It might seem far-fetched, but this wouldn't have been the first time something like this happened. Throughout the 20th century, the U.S. government experimented on its citizens in an effort to improve its biological warfare capabilities. In 1950, the U.S. Navy released bacterial spores in San Francisco in what was known as Operation Sea Spray. The test was supposed to be harmless, 
but 11 people checked into the hospital with urinary tract infections that were linked to the bacteria. The U.S. continued to experiment into the 60s. In 1966, the Army released another bacteria into the New York subway system. Medical experts now know the supposedly innocuous virus is associated with food poisoning. Scientists estimated the test affected over a million New Yorkers. Around the same time, the United States allegedly dropped infected ticks on Cuba. Some theorists wondered if this was a precursor to the deer ticks later found in Connecticut. However, Plum Island officials staunchly denied any link between the facility and Lyme disease. Former director Jerry Callis said the center never even researched the bacteria associated with the infection. But he did admit that Plum Island studied ticks. In one of their experiments, scientists infected individual ticks with a certain virus. Then they monitored the bug's offspring to determine how long the disease persisted in the bloodline. Perhaps some of these ticks had Lyme disease. If even one of them managed to reach the mainland, it could have resulted in a major outbreak. And according to author Michael Christopher Carroll, that might not be so surprising. In his research, Carroll claimed to have stumbled upon internal government documents that detailed the unsafe working conditions on Plum Island. The papers described large holes in some of the laboratory roofs for increased airflow. This meant that insects could invade the research space. If they could get in, maybe they could get out too. Plum Island seemed to have other security gaps as well. Allegedly, many of the animals were kept in outdoor pens when they were introduced to viruses and fed in open troughs. Birds and insects could easily access them, and one eyewitness even claimed that they saw a wild deer enter the feeding area. If these accounts are true, it's possible that an insect or another animal caught a disease on Plum Island, either in the animal pen or within the labs themselves. Then, swam or flew across the water and into a neighboring town. And one of the closest towns is none other than Old Lyme, Connecticut, located just 11 miles away from the facility. If that's the case, though, the outbreak was an accident, not a deliberate civilian experiment. That's true, but in 2019, another author, Chris Newby, released a book refuting this idea. She alleged that the government intentionally created Lyme disease and infected the Lyme area. Newby interviewed Dr. Willie Bergdorfer, the man who discovered the illness. In her conversations with him, she claimed the scientist admitted that he'd intentionally infected ticks with diseases before ostensibly learning about Lyme disease in 1975. Newby claimed that this admission proved the Plum Island connection. Still, some skeptics aren't so convinced. They've pointed out that Bergdorfer never suggested that the Lyme disease spirochetes he discovered had been purposely injected. And just because he was experimenting on ticks doesn't mean he was trying to spread an illness. Not to mention, numerous scientists have refuted Newby's claims. And most damning of all, several experts pointed out that Lyme disease actually existed long before Bergdorfer's 1981 discovery of its cause. 
Apparently, a man that had never left his hometown of Spooner, Wisconsin, was diagnosed with a disease in 1969. And in 1978, doctors diagnosed a small outbreak in Northern California. Still, in 2019, a U.S. congressman requested that the Pentagon investigate the government's testing of Lyme disease. Maybe one day, someone will reveal the truth behind the alleged experiments. I'm not sure the evidence is very strong for this theory, though. If anything, it seems more likely that Plum Island was negligent about their safety procedures. I don't think they knowingly infected American children. I see your point. We know that under Jerry Callis, the security on the island wasn't as tight as it had once been. So maybe a tick got out and somehow ended up in Lyme. It's possible. But like we said, Callis claimed the labs never studied Lyme disease. And I don't think he lied. Plum Island studied animal diseases, not human ones. If there'd been an outbreak of African swine fever or something similar, I might be more suspicious. But that wasn't the case. That's true. Still, we know the U.S. government has a history of testing on civilians, and there's a chance that's what happened in Lyme. I'll give this theory a 3 out of 10. I just don't see the connection between Plum Island and Lyme disease. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to give this a 2. Lyme disease may not have originated on Plum Island, but maybe something even more horrifying did. It's possible an experiment went wrong and they created an entirely new species, the Montauk Monster. Coming up, three beachgoers make a shocking discovery. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Since the facility first opened in 1954, Dr. Maurice Shahan insisted that no unauthorized person was allowed to step foot on the island. Those who came ashore without clearance would be detained and hosed down to prevent the spread of disease. There was another, even more significant rule. It was called the Nothing Leaves policy, and it meant exactly what it said. No objects, animals, or chemicals could leave the island. But in 2008, it might have been broken and one of the facility's most highly classified projects may have escaped. Which brings us to our third and final conspiracy theory. Scientists at Plum Island created the Montauk Monster. On July 12, 2008, 26-year-old Jenna Hewitt walked along Ditch Plains Beach in Long Island, New York with two of her friends. As they searched for somewhere to sit, they spotted a cluster of people looking at something in the sand. When they got up close, they realized it was an animal. Only it didn't look like anything they'd seen before. It looked like a bunch of creatures had been crossbred together. It had a dog's body, a raccoon's fingers, and a bird's beak. 
One of them joked that the monster probably came from Plum Island, which was just a short distance away. The women giggled at the idea. Then Jenna snapped a photo of the creature. Local media picked up the story, but they didn't take it too seriously. The reporting came with a sense of levity. Writers even included puns in their headlines. On July 29th, the website Gawker posted an 87-word article about the Montauk monster alongside the picture Jenna had taken. It was the first national coverage of the strange beast, and the story blew up. Soon, other mainstream sites like Fox News and the Huffington Post circulated the photo. Theorists flocked to Long Island to sneak a peek at the mysterious creature. But when they arrived, there was nothing there. The monster had disappeared. According to a local resident, the creature had decomposed in the weeks since the discovery. However, other articles claimed that at some point, an unidentified man told Jenna Hewitt that he needed to take the body away. We don't know much about this anonymous person. It's unclear if he was a government agent, a scientist, or just a curious local. We don't even know when he took the body or where he put it. For some reason, Jenna has refused to partake in any interviews since the incident. But this hasn't stopped theorists from doing their own investigating. And all of their digging led them to one place, Plum Island. The research facility is less than 20 miles away from Ditch Plains Beach. It seemed eerily coincidental that a mutated animal was discovered so close to an animal disease center. In part one, we learned that the laboratory incinerated euthanized animals every two weeks. By burning the infected creatures, officials minimized the chances that a disease could reach the mainland. Theorists wondered if the Montauk monster was one of these animals marked for the incinerator. That would explain the bindings on its arms. Maybe the creature took advantage of some lapses in security and escaped before it could be destroyed. We know that the Plum Island facilities were built in the early 1950s. Since then, the buildings have undergone few renovations or updates. In our last theory, we even heard that the labs had holes in the roofs. It's possible that the creature climbed out through one of these openings and escaped. Then it fled into the water and attempted to swim ashore. In fact, Plum Island had a major problem with deer swimming from the island to the mainland. For decades, scientists worried these animals might be carrying rare diseases to local towns. Maybe the mysterious creature was just following their cue. However, some experts are skeptical that the Montauk monster was even a monster. Some have theorized the animal was a fake. They suggested it was planted on the beach as part of an advertising campaign. Other skeptics wondered if the creature was actually a decomposed dog who died and had been thrown in the water. It's possible that its body had become strangely bloated and warped after a few days at sea. One journalist suggested that its nostrils could have morphed and given the illusion that the dog had a beak. Many theorists have a hard time buying such a simple explanation. But maybe the truth is just that, simple. One year after the incident, an unnamed source came forward claiming that he created the fabled Montauk monster. And its origins weren't so mysterious. The source was a young man. 
He said that in the summer of 2008, while he and his friends were partying on the beach near Shelter Island, New York, they discovered a dead raccoon lying in the sand. He said they picked up the creature and placed it on an inflatable rubber duck. Then they set the duck and the animal on fire and pushed it out to sea. The source said they were giving the creature, quote, a Viking funeral. Two weeks later, the Montauk monster was discovered on Ditch Plains Beach. It seemed this anonymous confession closed the cover on the mysterious creature. Maybe the monster was a raccoon corpse that had been abused and damaged. But shortly afterwards, another incident provided new fodder for theorists. On January 14, 2010, a security guard discovered a human body on the Plum Island shoreline. The only details released by police were that the person was six feet tall, had a large build, and very long fingers. Some theorists wondered if the security guard had stumbled upon another experiment gone wrong. Perhaps the dead man's unnaturally long fingers were yet another mutation. Maybe, just like the Montauk monster, he tried to escape Plum Island. The mysterious corpse appears to still be unidentified as of this recording. We may never know whether he even had anything to do with the facility. The same goes for the Montauk monster. All we have is a photograph. That picture is definitely disturbing. I've never seen anything like it. Still, it seems like pure speculation to connect the creature with Plum Island. You're probably right. But I can't help but wonder how such a strange animal washed up so close to an animal research center. I think it's possible this was one of their classified trials gone wrong. Maybe. But remember the one man's account. He admitted to burning a dead raccoon as part of a Viking funeral. That confession sounds too strange to be made up. Plus, the creature could have been decomposing for days or weeks. It might have been just a regular animal. I see your point. Even if the creature did come from Plum Island, that doesn't mean it was necessarily a freak mutation or a monster. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to give this theory a 3. The theories surrounding the Montauk monster are interesting, but I'm afraid I don't see clear evidence that Plum Island even engaged in these kinds of experiments. I'm going to give this theory a 1. While we're skeptical of the theories we discussed today, that doesn't mean Plum Island is in the clear. In 2023, Plum Island will be shuttered and the facility will move to Manhattan, Kansas. The USDA hopes to build a state-of-the-art laboratory just miles away from nearby animal health companies. It seems the original concerns about the facility being as far away as possible from the mainland U.S. are being abandoned, which could be cause for concern. Remember, all it takes is one leak to bring about a global disaster. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on Plum Island, amongst the many sources we used, we found Michael Christopher Carroll's book Lab 257 extremely helpful to our research. 
We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kotovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Natalie Protofsky and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Colts, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. That's parcast.com slash cults to sign up today.